Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, October 31st at 10.30 a.m. Happy Halloween. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And my colleague, Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. Thanks for having me. Later in the episode, we'll be reading the winner and runners-up in our KHN Halloween Haiku Contest. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I will say, starting out, much of Washington is kind of exhausted from celebrating the Nationals winning the World Series. Yay! Yay! (laughs) But it is a big news week other than in sports. Um, Let us start with open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. It starts Friday, November 1st and runs through December 15th, at least in most states. I also want to remind our audience that while we spend an awful lot of time talking about this, the ACA open enrollment is for something like 5% of the nation's population. Most people have insurance through their jobs or through Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, the Veterans Administration, or some other government program. And yet it is still sort of the measure by which we look at the health system. So with that disclaimer, uh, what's up with open enrollment this year? The individual mandate is gone, as is most of the federal money for promotion and outreach. One would expect that premiums would be rising a lot, but apparently that is not what's happening. We are increasingly moving back to sort of a, a patchwork system where there's a lot more variation between the states, which was something the ACA was intended to uh, fix and set some, you know, basic national uh, standards. Uh, And so now we have a system where some states are doing reinsurance and it's bringing premiums down a lot. Some states are not. Some states have individual mandates and some don't. Um, So we are seeing a lot of variation. But, But in general, premiums are flat or down in a lot of states, right? That, that is correct. Um, you know, what you really did see was a lot of insurers uh, have overpriced their plans in the past because they had a hard time gauging uh, what the the sickness of the population. Initially, they priced them too low, then they raised them rapidly. Um, so they have their, on average, I think the, the benchmark for the lowest price silver is down 4% yes, on the federal price, exchange. Yeah. Um, and uh, additionally, uh, keep in mind that most people right now on the ACA exchanges get subsidies that buffer the costs of premiums and premium increases. So you're again going to see people who get um, a number of reasonably priced plans, some in some cases even no-cost plans. Um, and I think that's been one of the drivers of why the, the enrollment so far has seen, held steady. It's going to be interesting now with the the spread of plans that don't comply with the ACA and the fact that um, health reimbursement accounts can be used by employers to um, have people buy plans that don't comply with the ACA, what kind of impact that's going to have. And that's going to be something I think we closely watch. And yet, I mean, I do want to go back and, and hit on this because everybody said, oh, without the individual mandate, right. the, the market will just crumble. And it turns out it wasn't the individual mandate that was getting people to buy. It was the subsidies. It was the subsidies. And not only do you have this average 4% drop, you have something like close to two dozen of insurers getting into the market, right? We had that Getting big, back in. Getting back in. Mm-hmm. We had that big pop in premiums around 32% or so a couple of years ago. Small de- decrease last year. It's happening again. So 
despite the fact the administration is trying to, you know, get rid of the entire bill and the fact that the cost-sharing subsidies that helped like 40% of beneficiaries with their out-of-pocket costs are gone and the money's down for enrollment and outreach, this thing's still kicking. I mean, well, the ACA is still question. around. Is this all a sign, do you guys think, that the ACA has worked? I think it's it's resilient and it's proven right. resilient both in the market sense and in the legal sense so far. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, and I mean, but the doesn't sub- mean it's working well, despite all these. Well, the subsidies are a big incentive, but with the crafters also had a lot of wisdom, if you will, to look at other things that help everybody, right? An adult child up to age 26 to stay on the parent's plan. Nobody could uh, kick you off because of your health history, deny you coverage. I mean, they made a lot of inroads to try to broaden the appeal, if you will, even if you weren't getting a subsidy. But one of the things we have to throw in here is affordability is still a big problem. If you don't qualify for that subsidy, then you're hitting some, in some cases, to your point, Alice, in some parts of the country, mm-hmm. some pretty high premiums. And that's the hammer the administration keeps coming back with, right? We think it doesn't work. If you don't get a subsidy, it's not affordable. But um, nonetheless, you do have something like 20 million people that have gotten covered under this law, and it's still there. I don't think 10 years ago when they passed this law, when I was covering it, I really didn't think we would still kind of be here arguing some of these main political divides, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, we are. I mean, I think this part of the ACA was intended to fix what was a very broken individual insurance market. And that's why the insurers were interested in having it fixed. And a lot of that has been chipped away, as I think Alice mentioned. There were, you know, there, the Trump administration is now allowing non-compliant plans, making it easier for people to get non-compliant plans. And we're starting to see once again people falling into the trap of I bought this insurance because I could afford it, and now it doesn't cover what I need. The other thing that I think nobody really anticipated, I certainly didn't. I remember in 2013 when they were starting to unveil what these plans would look like, and some of them had six thousand dollar deductibles. I mean, I think that's a that's a huge problem. That's basically the trade-off that the insurers made. It's like we can keep the premiums relatively affordable and with the subsidies really affordable, but then you can't afford to use your plan. And I think employers have sort of copied it. it. I mean, it's always been more expensive to be in the individual market because you don't have an employer helping subsidize you. But the idea that now sort of everybody has these, you know, four, at least four, sometimes five-digit deductibles, um, when most people don't have $400 in savings, there's just a huge disconnect. And I feel like that's why we're seeing such such an emphasis on cost, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Good point. And it's, it's not only on the ACA. I mean, the employer-based market, you still have, I think we... At Kaiser Health News, we had a story about if some employers, fewer of them are returning or using the super high deductible plans, but nonetheless, that's still there. That's the calculation you have to make mm. as a beneficiary, your premium versus your out-of-pocket costs. But it is the price of health care still. That is part of the big concern, and uh, it's something we all have to pay attention to. So I want to also go back to what Alice said about there there being a patchwork, because a lot of states are sort of doing their own thing. Um, California and New Jersey have reinstituted an an individual mandate, but California has raised its subsidies, which is something I guess they're and they're extremely (laughs) aggressive for enrollment. I mean, their their open enrollment already started. Um, It's underway. Will go longer as we speak. Yes. Yeah. A lot of states are doing that. Yep. And they're just pouring money into outreach and getting people to sign up. So. But they're giving subsidies to people higher up the income right, scale, right. which is something that Democrats have been talking about. Democrats nationally have been yeah. talking about for a while, but California is the first state to do it. I think it'll be interesting to watch sort of whether that gets some, because there's this cliff where if you can't get a subsidy, then you're really priced out. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, another chunk of people, particularly in a high cost state like California, will will be able to get back in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, of course, we are still waiting for this lawsuit, which could have an impact on open enrollment, True. even though and assuming this lawsuit says what we think it's going to, which is an appeals court panel will say that the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, it won't probably take effect right away, but it could still right. impact enrollment, right? Sure. And so there, uh, there's been some polling by um, these outside groups that are very involved in enrollment outreach, sort of doing what the administration used to do, um, but from the outside. Um, and they did some national polling and found that just there's just widespread confusion and misinformation about open enrollment. Um, people don't most people don't know the deadline to sign up. They don't know that they're probably eligible for a subsidy. They don't know that the ACA is still the law of the land. And so a court ruling in the middle of all of that would just make it much, much worse. Although, interestingly enough, just to be devil's advocate, when um, the repeal effort was going on, we saw an uptick in enrollment, mm-hmm. partly because there was greater public awareness. Um, oh, yeah. Big push, too, with the, yeah. the, yeah, the pro-ACA yeah. groups. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's just sort of I, keeping it in the news. Right. Well, they right. stepped in to fill the void. That the, and people want to get it while they still can, I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I just sure. it will be interesting to see depending on when that case comes down. The, the polling about how misinformed people are now, though, was pretty yeah. striking. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Wasn't it like 30 percent of people thought the they, ACA they pulled was the, not? The people who are insured and uninsured and mm-hmm. the people who are uninsured were very, very ill-informed about how to get insured, which is correct. Yeah. sad because most of them probably are eligible for a very cheap or free plan. All right. Well, meanwhile, on the campaign trail, the presidential campaign trail, uh, Democrats are still arguing about Medicare for all or a public option or something else very large. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who I guess is the front runner in at least a couple of states, has basically had her bluff called on Medicare for all and has now promised to put forward her own way to potentially finance it if elected. We have talked in the past about the funding memo that Bernie Sanders staff put out to accompany the latest iteration of his Medicare for all bill, which which is the one that Elizabeth Warren has uh, endorsed. And he's been pretty, Sanders has been pretty upfront about saying that, yes, the middle class will pay more in taxes, but it will still be less than they're paying out of pocket for health care that we were just talking about, um, a promise, by the way, that he can't keep. But Warren has so far held firm that she won't sign a bill that would raise middle class taxes at all. So how does she get out of this box? So she hasn't quite said that. My interpretation is that she said she will not sign a bill that would will cause middle class consumers, patients, citizen people to pay more overall. And so, yes, taxes could go up, but that will be more than offset in theory by having no premiums, no deductibles, no copays, no nothing. Um, and so, I, yeah, there is some sort of careful rhetorical dancing going on, but I, I think it is important. But yes, we're in this weird place where Warren has been uh, browbeat into releasing a financing plan to finance a bill that she didn't write. And um, and the person who did write it, it says, you know, I don't need a financing plan. I've given you some financing options, options ideas. Um, and so... The Medicare for All movement is very upset right now. The folks I talked to that the conversation has gone down this road about pay-fors and taxes and all of that. They much 
would prefer the conversation to focus on the benefits and also the cost of the current system, which we've all just been discussing. Well, I will say for the 11 millionth time, um, how much it costs will depend on how much you decide to pay for riders. It's like if you absolutely if you have we to, have exactly. no idea how much it will cost. So, so that's another piece of it. There's a lot of people who say it makes no sense for Warren to put out a financing plan because we don't know how much we're financing. We don't have a CBO score. We have some outside estimates by different groups that very wildly. I mean, literally by billions. <laughs> so, um, and the the bills themselves are not detailed enough to nail down uh, an actual cost. So well, it's like saying, how are you? You know, how much are you going to pay for your house? Well, it depends on how much the house costs. Also, these bills, if if they ever go anywhere, are going to get marked up and changed by Congress. Probably changed a lot, and that will change the cost a lot. And so, all of this, I think, is just. I think it's about signaling to Democratic primary voters that uh, certain candidates are fiscally responsible and rational and are thinking through these things. I think the actual plan and the numbers are not really the issue right now. Although it is risky politically, especially because, you know, remember Vermont, it was when they started to right. put the numbers together that it that it fell apart. Yep. Yeah. For those who don't remember, Vermont was going to try to do its own mm-hmm. single payer plan that was allowed under the ACA. And they got fairly far along and they until they didn't. <laughs> right. Right. So you could also argue it's important to have this kind of conversation mm-hmm. ahead of time. And that we're, what we're doing now is we're getting away from sort of the advertising slogans to kind of the nitty gritty. Right. And that may lead us more into a conversation about what it would do. It's been really hard for the candidates to break through on that. Mm-hmm. For voters looking at if they get employer-based coverage, if they like that employer-based coverage, if you're asking me to leave that to go to a Medicare for all, if in fact, that's where things end up, there's a lot of important calculations that have to be made. And, you know, you're just going to – got to think to your point, Julie, what are you going to cover? How much is it going to cost? Uh, you are you going to raise taxes? Are you going to limit spending? Are you going to borrow? But then you also have to look at the other side of the ledger. What do you spend now on premiums? What do you spend now on costs um, for, as a consumer, as a family? I mean, it's very complicated. But you think back to the fact that we're talking as much in a campaign as we are now about this is really quite, you know, it's it's extraordinary, I think, because Medicare for all used to be sort of just a complete pie in the sky. Maybe it'll stay up there. I don't know. But it's fascinating to watch this move forward. And we have to talk about the trade-offs if you talk about this kind of policy. It's just inevitable. So the the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, um, which is a, a, a pro-balanced budget group, I guess, or a pro-responsible budget group, uh, put out a paper this week on how to finance Medicare for All. And the numbers in it are really eye-popping. Well, they suggested you could do it with a 32% payroll tax, a 25% income surtax, a 42% VAT. Um, is all this talk about paying for it distracting from the discussion about the policy? Or do you think, I mean, Stephanie, you were sort of getting to this, that, that maybe if people actually realize how big a, a change this would be, you know, it, it, Medicare for all is a slogan that sounds great. And I think most of the presidential candidates thought that they could just coast on it. And now we're having a pretty detailed discussion about right. it. And that's pro- one of the problems, frankly, with how partisan we've become is that if you start having a real conversation about the trade-offs, it becomes a blood sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really, we really need to be able to have this dialogue and conversation for the country to know where it wants to go on health care. 
Well, also in politics this week, there was a vote in the Senate about pre-existing conditions. You are forgiven if you missed it, given everything else that's going on this week. But the the Democrats forced a vote to attempt to roll back a Trump administration rule that makes it easier to sell so-called short-term health insurance policies that may not cover pre-existing conditions, the things that we were talking about, the 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 non-comprehensive type coverage. Um, the vote failed uh, because Democrats are in the minority, but that wasn't the point of having this vote, right? No, we're we're already seeing it being used to whack Republicans who are up for re-election in 2020, and the the odds sort of write themselves. And but this vote was more about the um, 1332 waivers. Yeah, but it was they were yes. they were using it. Right, it was right. it was but in fact that technically the vote was about the 1332 waivers, but the message was about pre-existing yes, right. conditions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which, which you could infer into what was in there. Right. And so... Although it's a bit of a reach. It makes sense that Democrats are, you know, um, beating the drum on pre-existing conditions and not 1332 ravers, which most people have never heard of and states <laughs> haven't used yet, but they could. Well, um, that's what Vermont was trying to do exactly. when they didn't do single payer. Right, 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 right. And, and so state, states might do this, um, but it's hard to uh, fear monger about something that has not happened yet. Um, but in the broader context of pre-existing conditions, Democrats are going to say, you know, so-and-so vulnerable Republican Cory Gardner, whoever, um, you know, voted to allow insurance companies and states to erode your protections for pre-existing conditions. We're yeah. already I've got a million press releases immediately yes, after the vote. Right, right. <laughs> never, yes. never miss your messaging opportunity. <laughs> yes. Never. And Rule yeah. number one of Washington. Although, I don't know, I think this one, this this was not a good week, to, but I think they were pushed there. To, they, they were sure. using a, and uh, I might mean, get a little lost. Senate Democrats have been pretty limited in what they can do this year at all on health care. Some bipartisan efforts have stalled out. And so they used this vote as, you know, a, send a little message about what they stand for in their attempt to win back the Senate. Well, meanwhile, on the other side of Capitol Hill, a group of conservative Republicans in the House have unveiled a health plan that seems like an awful lot of ideas we have seen before. Uh, more uh, health savings accounts, high-risk pools, block grants for Medicaid, things that things that now Republicans have voted on and haven't gotten through either. Why do I feel like Congress gets that what Americans care most about are prices and and pre-existing condition coverage. But the Democratic presidential candidates are, are sort of off in kind of another whole discussion. Well, I mean, it's related, but... Um, the public, yeah, they're not talking prices. Yes. And there's there's even questions about how much really is in Medicare for all that would constrain, is there enough to constrain prices? I, I do think this is a significant problem for Democrats. And, you know, this, everyone's pretty much already written this story. And you would think perhaps with the narrative from the media, what about this, that you would hear more mm -hmm. about costs and price and what – I don't think you could ask many people how will Medicare for all lower your prices and they would fully understand. And that's the other thing that I think is really frustrating for people who are close to, to health care policy is – a lot of the things don't deal with what are the drivers of the healthcare costs. How do we how do we tackle those? Even though there are parts and components of that in Medicare for all, and I think that's why Democrats, especially some moderate, moderate Democrats and on the Hill, are getting worried. That is part of the discussion about Medicare for all, but it's like a couple hops removed from right. And so it the hasn't main broken through. Points. Even the exactly. main parts haven't broken. And yet through half yet. the candidates are. In Congress. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so, you know, if you press them on it, they'll say, well, if, you know, we have the government negotiating the price of drugs, not just for people in Medicare, for, but for everybody, that'll lower that cost. If we, you know, set rates for providers, which they haven't said what those are, but theoretically they would be lower than 
I'm the just, free for all I'm we just have surprised. now. I, yeah. I feel like the that Congress is talking about cost a lot and the presidential candidates, many of whom, you know, half of whom are senators, are not. Well, and Republicans I, are. Well, I mean, yeah. Trump is all about health care costs. But, but isn't this sort of the pressure with the Democratic Party to the left flank the, versus the more moderate flank that there's a lot of tension mm-hmm. now? You've got still, I don't know, the last debate was like 12 people on the stage or something. I mean, at some point, if you will, there'll be mm-hmm. more of a farrowing out of, of candidates and more of a focus. And it wouldn't surprise me if we went to more of this price discussion during the general election. Mm-hmm. Now it's 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 a different context, uh, a different discussion, again, very focused on within party politics. But I think to your point, Julie, and everyone at the table has been talking about it, this is what consumers are talking about. A lot of lawmakers are talking about it. The campaign, it's inevitable, has to talk about it, whether it's a congressional campaign or the presidential campaign. I think it's where we're going to be in the next, gosh, we're a year away, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. almost exactly. We're going to get there. <laughs> 53 weeks. Mm-hmm. All right. But well, who's counting? Yeah, but who's counting? <laughs> so, so we still can't go a week, it seems, without news from the reproductive health front. Um, not a big surprise, but a federal district court has blocked the Alabama abortion ban, which was supposed to take effect November 15th. Alice, remind us what that ban was going to do. So that was the strictest ban in the country. It goes beyond all of the uh, sort of fetal heartbeat, so-called laws um, that ban abortion after about six weeks, and this would ban abortion at any stage in pregnancy. It has no exemptions for victims of rape or incest. It does have sort of a medical emergency exemption um, that's sort of vaguely defined, and it could sentence abortion providers to up to 99 years in prison. The lawmakers and the state AG were fully expecting it to get blocked at this level. They say openly that their bigger goal is to get it appealed up to the Supreme Court. So this was all sort of... Foreseen. <laughs> we know that there's already the Louisiana case that the Supreme Court has yes. taken, and we'll hear this this session. Do we? Is there a chance that the Alabama one will get there too, or not this Alabama one? Are you referring to a different Alabama? No, I'm one? referring to this. Oh Alabama. no, no, no. So this ban. is way yeah. farther down in the pipeline, even among the um, state gestation ban category of abortion cases making their way through the pipeline right now. This is um, not as far along as uh, Mississippi's 15-week ban, which already got to the Fifth Circuit. So that one's the furthest along. So that's what we will we will expect to see yes. more from the Supreme Court. And also on sort of a similar but not quite the same front, an appeals court in California has blocked the administration's attempt to basically make the birth control provision to the Affordable Care Act optional for any employer with a, quote, religious or moral objection to offering contraception. Uh, this is also headed for the Supreme Court. I see you nodding, Stephanie. Yeah, no, no, it's it's, it's just something, uh, it's, it's like this continual drumbeat on this issue. And yes, I think... I think at this point there's almost a sense of, well, let's just wait and see how this ultimately comes down at the Supreme Court this is, level. I think this may have been the most litigated issue out of the affordable mm-hmm. care. I mean, I don't I think, think anybody would have predicted that 10 years ago, that, that what what they've been unable to decide is what you do about requiring birth control to be offered by religious employers. And we've already had a Supreme Hobby Court lobby, decision yeah, on this, yeah. right? Yeah. Hobby yeah. Lobby. Uh, and yet... It's still, it still not goes on and on. This is little sisters of the poor. Yes, too, this is right? little yes. sisters right, of the right. poor. They would be implicit in even telling an employee you can go here to get. But it's your, interesting because in one sense it's a small piece of the ACA, but in another sense it's it's a piece that has had a huge impact on the lives of millions of people um, that were not 
able to get no cost birth control and now are. And there's been, I think, a big public health impact of that. Yeah. I mean, the the whole thing, it's it sort of it's ironic. And we should point out that it was actually the reproductive health provisions that blocked the um, some of the bipartisan bills that, that Congress was working on from getting through in 2018. They had agreed on everything. Uh, and then they sort of they the Republicans decided that we want to have an absolute total permanent ban on any possibility of any money going for anything abortion related and that basically blew up the bill. So, I mean, every time they talk about Medicare for all, I'm like, what are you going to do about reproductive health? Well, they say that it'll that Medicare for all will cover abortion. But of course, it's going to be a huge fight. Yeah. Good luck with that. We, yeah. we can't even resolve birth control. Although birth control could be resolved, I suppose, by the Supreme Court in the ACA lawsuit. So. That's true. <laughs> that would all go away. Right. <laughs> that is this week's news. And here is what at least a few of you have been waiting for, the winners of our KHN Haiku Contest. For those of you who aren't regular readers, our homepage every day features a health policy-related haiku. And we ask readers for a special spooky haiku for Halloween. So I am pleased to present the winner. It's from Sarah Collins. Drug prices rise up like a witch on a broomstick. Cannot pay, so die. <laughs> oh, hey, that was that was spooky. <laughs> and we have a couple of runners up, which the panelists have volunteered to read. Um, Alice, you want to go first? This one's by Emma Eisenberg. It's Trick or treat, they cry. Your life or your life savings. The price is too high. They're all very dark. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Bobby Peterson. The Grim Reaper stalks. The ACA in peril. Supreme confidence. Am <laughs> I from Lauren Anthus? Reinhardt's ghost haunts me, but instead of boo, he says, "The price is stupid." <laughs> That's the ultimate health nerd haiku. Yeah, that is. There you go. Very pleased. It's a deep cut. (laughs) Yes, very deep cut. All right. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That is where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth, all one word. Alice, why don't you start this week? So I chose this piece in the Washington Post. It has four bylines. Should I read all of them? Uh, you don't have to. Okay. Um, very impressive story. It's Trump campaign urges White House to soften proposed flavored vape ban. So this is um, about the the administration is currently working on what they say is a ban on all flavored vapes, a temporary ban until they can be fully vetted by the FDA because people are dying and they are there's a youth smoking um, vaping epidemic, uh, etc. So this piece digs into how the Trump re-election campaign is driving the bus on this policy and lobbying hard for the White House to water down what it has proposed to do and allow some flavors to still be out there because they think that a harsher crackdown on vaping will alienate um pro-vape voters and cost Trump the election. Which which was an extra credit. The pro-vape voters was an extra credit a week or two ago. Yes, 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 yes. So um, they have lots of good reporting about how the campaign has done their own polling on this. And um, so this will be a big fight um, in the weeks to come. And medical groups are just outraged about this and say, you know, if you still allow even a couple flavors, even just menthol, if you allow only just menthol and get rid of all of other flavors, kids will vape the menthol. Like, 
you have to get rid of all of them. So I think there's a rule at OMB. I just went to OMB on this, too. Yes, it's coming. Yeah. Right. Well, and the president in the, I think he was in the Oval Office, wasn't he? said that, you know, we want all this, we want to make all the flavors go away because it's, you know, bad because kids are vaping and it's bad. So he's already, the president's already been on record on this. Exactly. But now now they're getting into what is a kid flavor versus an adult flavor. And these industry groups say, oh, well, adults like fruity desserty flavors as well and you're gonna harm adults who are using vapes to quit smoking and so that this whole um fight is playing the fight goes on the fight goes on stephanie uh i have a story from kaiser health news called uh moved overseas for school stayed for insulin by i'm gonna say this wrong i'll say it it's chafali luthra (laughs) pretty name uh and um it is uh it looks like uh this was done um from germany and it's an interesting story about uh, this woman named Katie West who has type 1 diabetes and was paying for her insulin here in the United States. And when she went to Germany, of course, it was significantly cheaper. I think she was paying 10 euros a month. And sort of the idea of a unique way into the story that once again spotlights the difference uh, between what we pay for uh, insulin and Europe and, um, you know, feeds into kind of what we're thinking perhaps will happen with the Trump administration in terms of some international price indexing efforts. Mac. So mine is from the Harvard Business Review, The Role of Private Equity in Driving Up Healthcare Prices, written by three folks at the Commonwealth Fund, and I'm going to apologize for mispronouncing, Lavisa Gustafson, Shanur Servai, and David Blumenthal. And the reason I like this piece is I know that we all know about private equity and healthcare, and we've all been talking about it and writing about it. But I thought this really wrapped up it all in a very understandable way for people to lay out to people how much private equity money is in the healthcare system. You might not think about it in your emergency room or with your anesthesiologist or with another medical specialist or radiologist, but it's there. And while private equity also often rather brings innovation, it also wants returns. And so there's another link there between many of the private equity investments and this issue of surprise medical bills, which we've all been writing about, it, particularly Kaiser Health News, been writing a lot. You go to an in-network provider, maybe in a hospital, provider comes in who's not in the network, and the next thing you know, you have a huge bill. So it laid that out. It also talked about this group, Doctor Patient Unity, which has been doing a lot of advertising on the surprise medical during bill. the World Series during, during the, the World, World Series, Series right during yeah. big, I kept explaining to the people I was watching <laughs> I with that what that yeah. is I kept explaining on somebody actually flagged me on Twitter it's like do you know what this group is and like oh yeah right. <laughs> here's the link we did a fabulous story on this back in September I think about a month ago but nonetheless I thought the story was very approachable very readable and that's why I recommended it well mine is by uh, Ben Elgin at Bloomberg News it's called sheriff's ad slammed drug imp and Big Pharma helped pay the tab. It's about a huge ad campaign that was mostly seen here in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, ostensibly paid for by the National Sheriff's Association that featured sheriffs from around the country warning of the potential dangers of drugs imported from other countries. But, of course, it turns out that the money for the ad came not from the sheriffs but from a nonprofit group that's funded almost entirely by the U.S. pharmaceutical industry, which strongly opposes allowing broader drug imports because they fear it will bring down prices. Now, it is true that there are a lot of experts who are not paid by the drug industry who worry about the ability of counterfeit and expired products to find their way into the U.S. drug supply if import safeguards are loosened. But it's also true that whenever you see an issue ad, don't take at face value the funder that is listed there. 
uh, lecture, lecture finished. That is our show for the week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Steph Armour One. At Mary Agnes Carey. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.